show, everyone, cruising along from one Harrison Ford movie to another. Join us, won't you? Let's get out of this turkey town and hit the road for the Ford Fiesta. I'm scruffy looking at him with and I'm fortune and glory seeker Paul Preston and I'm really excited today to cover American graffiti I think it's gonna be a great show I'm not really interested in your opinion that's right we've been doing this show long enough where now we finally get to a movie you've heard of George Lucas's classic coming-of-age early 60s comedy American graffiti help us spread the word about the Lord's work we're doing here by commenting on articles videos and more subscribe where you can Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora YouTube and more and then get ready for everything coming up on the show and all things we're up to at the movie guys by going to the movieguys.net and following us on at the movie guys all over social media. We're, we're everywhere. We're like Bob Falfa. We're mysteriously somewhere out in this town is the movie guys somewhere. Now the plot to American graffiti meanders, but we're going to sum it up for you anyway. But first, what's new in the world of Harrison Ford? Oh, I'd be happy to tell you. First of all, we talked about The Staircase, this new TV series that he's going to do. Of course, it's not weird now that people do TV series. I still think it would be weird if Harrison Ford did. There's something about the movie star status of Ford and Denzel and Tom Cruise that just, I don't want to see do TV. But, you know, the, the line of quality, of course, blurs all over the place nowadays. There's something about being a minor character in a Stallone movie, too, but he's done that. So, I mean, he's broken some a lot of barriers here. I mean, he's 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 done a Dolph Lundgren I mean, now I can do a TV show. Either way, he's out. The Staircase, which after we posted about this, someone uh, responded about what The Staircase is. Remember, we said it was a movie where uh, a guy's wife falls down the stairs and he's accused of her murder. It's like a fugitive, like Harrison Ford would be perfect in this. There you go. But apparently it's based on this Netflix show that I never watched. There's too many like true crime dramas out there. And the docuseries, there's tons of them. I can't keep up the, to where this... Everybody's murdering somebody right <laughs> yeah, now. And Netflix, I mean, just... And Netflix is there. <laughs> I ought to kill you right now. And so they... Uh, they did a series called that covered this real life trial of the guy accused of murder, and then there's all sorts of layers get revealed, of course, as they go along. Either way, uh, Colin Firth is now going to do that show. Harrison Ford is not, so I guess he's just going to solely focus on Indiana Jones Five, which means this might actually be happening now. So Karen's favorite actor replaced your favorite yeah, actor. Exactly. My, my, my <laughs> yeah. Um, Indiana Jones 5 may really be happening now. They not only have a director attached, but now another actor. You've heard, I mean, think Harrison Ford could say, I'm doing it as much as he wants. It's been said every year. Now, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is cast in the show from Fleabag. And of course, Adam, you'll know her from... Solo! Yeah. A Han Solo castmate is appearing with Han Solo in a, uh, wow, in an Indiana Jones movie. That's for real, man. And that also probably means Solo 2's happening. And Randy Couture has said The Expendables 4 will shoot this fall. Now, will Ford be in it? Will anyone else be in it? Apparently, that's the only news that anyone has about Expendables 4 is that Randy Couture said they're going to make it. Who's left to bring in bring into those movies? They they, they plumbed every... <laughs> yeah, is is uh, Jeff Speakman? Has Jeff, Jeff Speakman, Speakman made an appearance Tony in one ja, of those? Mark perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, Martin Cove is free and he'll gladly do it but Randy Couture of course is the guy that said yeah we're doing Expendables 4 because <laughs> he's probably like I, I, I could I need it I could use it. <laughs> there's always there's always a thing about the you know fifth build actor saying the next thing is happening like like um, uh, what's her face from Lebowski Bunny Lebowski uh, oh, Tara um, Reed Tara Reed who could use the work Tara Reed I know, we know you need Lebowski too to happen <laughs> And then, of course, as ever, I googled Harrison Ford News just to see what would happen. And, uh, you know, there's the usual Daily Mail spotted him return. It's the interesting. God bless the Daily Mail. I love what they think is news. Like he was spotted it's returning great. to his car. He was spotted <laughs> arriving at tennis. He was spotted walking to his plane, arriving at his, and they were there. Arriving at a studio in downtown L.A., which not only does it crack me up, of course, because Daily Mail is just on that stuff, but also 
how come we're not seeing Harrison Ford? He's everywhere, apparently, according to walking to cars and in and out of buildings and planes. And Also, think of the daily intrigue of being a Daily Mail correspondent. I mean, you think of any spy movie where they're tailing, you know, in Munich. Like, think of the Munich-style drama of following Harrison Ford that they're reporting around the corner. He's, he's picked up some eggs, you know? Like, get, get the photographer in here. Did he get the dozen or the half dozen? Sometimes they, they cut them in half and do a half dozen you can purchase, but it's a convenience store, so he probably did that as opposed to a full dozen if you were in a grocery store, and they're figuring it all out. I need a 12K photo. Zoom in. Zoom in. <laughs> Enhance. Enhance. <laughs> yeah, and it's always that, too. Looking sharp. Looking sl- looking slim in a blah, blah, blah. You know, this, this, yeah. the dumbest. In a belt. Book. Last week was a belt or, so, or two weeks ago was <laughs> yeah, a belt, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, they were examining a belt from the 84. They had so little news yeah. on Ford. But this part's interesting because we've reported twice about him going into a bike shop. Again, we haven't reported it. We've reported the Daily Mail reported it. But now there's an end to all that. That story comes to a close? Yes. So he, he dropped off his bike. Ford biked <laughs> from Tijuana to Cabo San Lucas on this bike. First of all, 78 years old. Oh, biking gosh. from right. Tijuana to Cabo San I have trouble going to the other side of Burbank and back on my bike. On the Chandler bike path. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Remember when everybody said he was too old to do Idiot Jones, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? What is that movie, 15 years old now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just watched Force Awakens last week and I'm like, he's still, he's so great in this movie. Totally. Like, it's like, is he too old to play Hansel? No, never. No, it's Harrison Ford. Yes. He's never too old to do anything. And he'll Indiana Jones the hell out of that role. So for those of you who are sitting around the computer going, man, when will the movie guys tell me what he did with that bike? Because he, he, he got the bike and to take it back or something. There's some there's another story in there where adjusting it or something. Yeah. Well, uh, we, now we realize why he needed some adjustments. Like, I'm going to need to uh, ride this uh, halfway across Mexico. Can you make sure it's, uh, you know, it's greased up. <laughs> and of course, there's one more quick recurring show segment before we get to the recap. And that is this date in Ford history. April 7th, 1974, that's around the time that we're recording this episode on American Graffiti, the next movie we cover on the show, The Conversation, is released. And I'm really excited to get to that one. Only saw it once, probably went over my head. I was really young and uh, happy to be older and ready to really absorb it the way Coppola meant me to check it out. Oh, yeah, you're going to enjoy it. I mean, I've watched this movie a lot. Such a fascinating little artifact comes in between Godfather and Godfather 2. He just does this tiny little indie in San Francisco, like pure zoetrope style. Yeah, and I think one of those that he made because Godfather was big. Like yeah. he was otherwise yeah, trying yeah, to make exactly. it since the 60s, I think. And then 2015, uh, April 8th, Age of Adeline is released. Now, this is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, right? Because I've seen, I remember seeing the trailer, oh, Harrison Ford's in the movie. Then I realized he had a really small part. And then for some reason, I never saw it. Yeah, that's what started this whole conversation to begin with is like, I can't believe there are, at some point it became, I mean, of course, you and I, we saw every Harrison Ford movie that was released yeah. ever. I mean, there's no reason to, I don't know, what was I, 10, 11-year-old should enjoy the Mosquito Coast, but I was there. Until sometime after Air Force One or something that it just started dropping off. As we come to some of these anniversaries, I'm like, there was a movie called Age of Adeline and he was in it? Okay. Yeah, over time it's like, oh, now I'm endeared to watching Paranoia with Gary Oldman. Like, those two reteamed after Air Force One and we didn't go? What was wrong with me? So, yeah, so we're going to check that out. So, finally, after five movies, we don't have to say, what the hell is American Graffiti? Although, we're still unclear what those two words together mean, but we'll do our best to figure that out with our patented Movie Guys recap. Paul, let's do it. Where were you in 62, asks the tagline for American Graffiti. While the movie never gets to the bottom of that mystery, it does tell us what Kurt, Steve, John, Terry, Lori, Debbie, and Carol were doing in 62. And that's cruising around Modesto, California in vintage hot rods. The movie opens like a cannon that fires nostalgia with rock around the clock and sets the tone for the entire movie, which will not stop playing oldie hits for two hours. On the last day of summer vacation, four high school friends meet up at Mel's Drive-In, which sets the standard for nostalgic roller skating waitresses. In a movie about cars, the main characters are perfectly set up by their car of choice. Steve, played by Ron Howard in a hot 58 Impala, Kurt, played by Richard Dreyfus, arrives in an oddball French Citroën du Chevaux. John Milner, the town racing champion played by Paul Lamatt, arrives in the iconic 1932 rat rod Ford five-window coupe. But no entrance defines their character as sharply 
as Charles Martin Smith's Terry the Toad, who arrives on a Vespa that he fails to take out of gear, sending him careening into a newspaper box. The group are all on the precipice of adulthood. Kurt is heading off to college the next day, but he's not sure about it as he still looks up to Milner, who's more than happy being the big man around town. But Milner gets a warning of a challenge to his throne, a faster street racer who's looking to beat him in a drag race. The 1962 equivalent of, I can finish Overwatch quicker than you. Is Overwatch a thing you can finish? I'm assuming. I don't know. I Steve don't know. Is, <laughs> Steve's heading off to college, putting his relationship <laughs> with his high school sweetheart, Lori, played by Laverne and Shirley, Cindy Williams, in an awkward position. A position he makes more awkward by telling her it would strengthen their relationship if he was able to freely sleep around with college freshmen. A relationship plan girls rarely come up with. Steve and Lori head off to find more oldies at the source, a sock hop. But before he does, he gifts his prize 58 Impala to Terry to take care of while he's gone off to college. And so Terry sets off to cruise for babes in something they won't fall off of when he misses the clutch. Rather than pushing his Citroen to the sock hop, Kurt tags along in Lori's car with Steve but is distracted when American Graffiti, not satisfied with launching the careers of Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, and Cindy Williams, adds the first screen appearance of Suzanne Somers. She turns and mouths, I love you, to Kurt. At least that's what he sees as he sets out for the rest of the night looking for her. And maybe Pam Dauber, so this movie can cast every show for ABC's 1979 Tuesday night lineup. But that's all prologue to what American Graffiti is all about. Cruising. Yeah, round and round the central strip of Modesto, showing off cars, gunning engines, pulling pranks, and having rolling conversations with other kids in their classic cars. It's a perfect representation of an early 60s subculture so perfectly presented you'd never guess it was the first. The stories of the four main characters cut back and forth in a series of vignettes tied together by hit song after hit song being played by rock DJ legend Wolfman Jack. A song starts in one car and continues in another as every topic about teen life in the 60s gets batted around, except for venereal disease. Milner tries to hit on some ladies in another car, trying to get one of them to cruise with him in his passenger seat, only to accidentally get saddled with babysitting one of their kid's sisters, Carol, played by one day at a time's Mackenzie Phillips, introducing another famous TV actor to the cast. Meanwhile, the movie shifts to the sock hop where a now crumbling Steve and Lori are forced to pretend they're happy homecoming king and queen in a dance surrounded by onlookers who can't hear the devastating breakup conversation they're having in one of the movie's standout dramatic contrasts. Meanwhile, Kurt joins a street gang. That's right. The pharaohs rip off the arcade belonging to Mr. Gordon, who recently gave Kurt a scholarship for college. Kurt is able to distract them while the pharaohs go on their stealing binge, ingratiating him to the gang. Meanwhile, after a total drag racing fail, Terry one-ups his doofiness by getting Steve's car stolen, allegedly. But this predicament puts him and a girl he ends up with, the flirtatious and loony Debbie, in the woods, making their way back to the strip. Debbie brings up a story of the goat killer, who, despite how much the name terrifies Terry, is not the greatest killer of all time. By now, in any lesser movie, you'd be missing a plot. But American Graffiti doubles down on, oh well, how about we just do this next? By then having Kurt head out to Wolfman Jack's radio station to ask him to read a message on the air to the blonde he saw. Wolfman pulls up Mike and Dave need wedding dates and pretends to be someone he's not, an employee of the Wolfman. Turns out he is the Wolfman and reads the note anyway. Before Richard Dreyfus can say, what about Bob? Along comes who the movie is really about. Harrison Ford as hotshot street racer Bob Falfa. Hey, you know a guy around here with a piss yellow deuce coupe? Supposed to be hot stuff? What do you mean, John Milner? Hey, nobody could beat him, man. He's got the fastest. I ain't nobody, dork. Who takes advantage of the rift between Steve and Lori and starts to cruise with Lori, even serenading her, leading to another Harrison Ford career first, and maybe only? on-screen song. Long enchanted evening, you will see a stranger, you will see a stranger. Well, you got the little witness where he sings along with Sam Cooke. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, you're right. You're right. We've got two Harrison Ford songs. And you know what? In the ten we haven't seen. Hey, there might be more coming. 
I'm wondering, Age of Adeline? Maybe he just comes in, sings a song, and leaves. Adeline, like a Bobby Darren. <laughs> Special of First Nation. <laughs> Terry eventually finds Steve's car and, in an attempt to get it back, gets pummeled by a couple of hoods. But Milner suddenly appears and beats the assailant back, right before he finally takes his race with Bob Falfa. Hey, you're supposed to be the fast thing in the valley, man, but that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. I'm sort of embarrassed to be this close to you. Color your car there, man. What's that supposed to be? Sort of a cross between piss yellow and puke green, ain't it? And all the plot lines come together during the Falfa and the Furious finale, as Milner races Falfa, sending the upstart careening off the road and flipping his car. Milner now doubts his future in being the local speed demon. Kurt doubts being Milner as a viable future and decides to go to college after all. Steve, however, doubts his plan to leave Lori when he realizes there's a Harrison Ford in Modesto scoping for babes. The movie takes a famously grim turn as the final credits summarize what happened to each of them. There were seven boys from Texas rode off to fight a war. No, wait, wait, no, not that song again, not that song again, okay. But we all know it was on-screen text that lets us know that Bluto became a senator and Niedermeyer was killed in Vietnam by his own troops. And that's American Graffiti. Yeah, for sure, I just want to say this time, I'm going to seem like a really smart guy. I just did a lot of research. <laughs> I just don't Great. know all these things. All right. So the year was 1973 when the film was released. Uh, budget of, and this is, of course, one of the biggest facts about this movie you'll ever find. Right. Budget of $777,000. Box office yes. take of $140 million. Wow. And that goes over $200 million once you throw in video sales, which had three or four different spots along the way, I think twice. It was released on VHS and then once on, or then DVD and then Blu-ray as well. So, and soundtrack sales, people weren't mm -hmm. even though there were famous soundtracks like The Graduate, they weren't pulling in like graffiti money. Like this is this is a huge. And one of the things I thought was interesting and in how, like now it just seems like forever ago. You watch the scenes from the early '60s like that, and you go, "This is like forever ago." But back then, it was like nine years. But it already Recent nostalgia. Yeah. It had changed so much. It's and it's a true well, and also look look at what had happened between 1963 and 1973, you know the Vietnam War, and that's what you know all the serious movies are being made about you know coming home and you know all these very serious takes and nothing for the kids, nothing for nothing fun. It's very interesting that the nostalgia is so recent, mm -hmm. which is radical. Nobody done anything like this. Yeah, Lucas was 27 when he got the green light to make this movie. So he, he was, you know, like it's funny for a 27 year old to be nostalgic, but he did it, you know, and it's very successful. But to just see the uh, the market, the audience for this and the, I mean, this is his life we're looking at, too. And it's spectacular. But this sort of this type of showcase of cars, I mean, maybe there was hot rod movies in the 50s, but those are trashy. You know, these were these much like Easy Rider. This was kind of a, a, a Corman trope that was used for drive ins, you know, hot rods to hell. But, you know, to take that genre and apply all this recent nostalgia for a generation that was yearning for it after Vietnam really hurting in terms of the feel goods. Um, this movie's radical. Yeah, you, very you radical. Watch the, the Beatles change from 64 to 71, radically speaking that that word. Yeah. You know, so he sets it. He's like before that, before JFK, before Nam, all that. We're going back to like the last innocent year. <laughs> yep. Not, right. And that's the tagline. Where were you in 62? And of course, it's on that great Mort Drucker poster. I know you're a big fan and you've brought him up before. <laughs> yeah, I brought up Jack Davis. Mort Drucker's another oh, one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the, the, Mad, the Mad Magazine guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And this this movie is made for a Jack Davis or Mort Drucker uh, <laughs> uh, 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 cartoon because it's all vignettes. It's all little skits. Throughout the whole thing, that happened to add up. I mean, this was the pulp fiction of its time. Nobody had seen anything like this on any level that it's playing tens. Mm -hmm. the, the Wolfman Jack, you know, that type of nostalgia or the idea that there was a station that an entire town never turned off. You know, you'd turn off the car and then you'd hear it played somewhere mm -hmm. else all out in the world. Um, the fractured narrative of this, which is what made the studio want to shelf it. Because who could make sense of this movie? That's what the studio said. This is not done in any, any traditional way. And when you watch this, it, it, you know, it's a foregone conclusion that American Graffiti is an American classic and this, this great movie. But this is like a European art film in how it just does not give a f 
about your narrative structure. <laughs> all right, I'm going to deep dive on all that stuff in just a sec. But I want to ask you, as I don't remember the first time I saw this movie. I remember the most, until until just now, the most recent time I saw it, which was in a friend's backyard projected onto a sheet with a... Oh, okay. But I don't remember the first time I saw it. Do you? Because it predates us being regular moviegoers, clearly. Even as a George Lucas, a young George Lucas fan, because of Star Wars, and I wanted to see other stuff he'd done... Um, I saw THX 1138 before I saw this movie because they aired wow. that on TV. Yeah. I don't know what it was shortly after the success of Star Wars. They were just as a Sunday night movie and it was George Lucas, George Lucas, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. Stay up on the Sunday night CBS Sunday night movie and watch George Lucas's George Lucas, George Lucas. <laughs> and uh, I watched the whole thing and I, I, I couldn't make sense of what one George Lucas had to do with this George Lucas. So. He comes out of THX 1138 with Coppola uh, telling him, you know, he should write a script that appeals to mainstream audiences. And you know, right. because we because have this THX, heaviness. Yeah. THX is impenetrable. I mean, <laughs> he made a Kubrick movie before he made the most profitable movie of all time, which is this, uh, and before he made Star Wars, which is incredible. Yeah. So, like, the nostalgia is I want to document the way that we used to pick up girls, which wasn't too long ago, but may get lost because of how much society had already shifted. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, Coppola is like, I'm in. So his clout adds another 175000 to an already small budget, but uh, makes it bigger. Because this was this was very recently Francis Ford Coppola of The Godfather. Well, we just have to talk about this 70s genius incest that went right. on. Every genius worked with it's all incredible. the other geniuses back then. And there's plenty of books and, and docs I need to see to dive deeper into this because it's so great. You do. I know. <laughs> but uh, Lucas, okay, so... What I read, Lucas worked for four years on Apocalypse Now, developing yes. it with John Milius, and at one point was scheduled to direct. He got Gary Kurtz scouting locations. He was going to shoot. Yes. George Lucas was going to do this. George Lucas! Was going to do the following. He had these plans. Shoot Apocalypse Now, cinema verite, using 16mm cameras, and real soldiers while the war was going on. That's what he was going to shoot in, in the early 70s. George Lucas, radical. He seems not that radical, but he had that in mind, you know, before he got on his own stuff. And, and that version of Apocalypse Now, I believe, can be seen in the Vietnam sequence of more American graffiti. He did get to do what he intended to, but on a much smaller scale. And then, of course, back to the genius incest. Coppola needs post-production money for Apocalypse Now, and he eventually makes it. Who gives it to him? Lucas, because he's got Star Wars money. Right, so it's he's just, got Star Wars money. These guys just all working together is just amazing. Um, Lucas also turned down Tommy and Hare. He was offered both uh, to make his own projects. And uh, THX got him 10 grand to from United Artists to develop the script for American Graffiti um, when THX played at Cannes. And he gave 10K to, the, to a guy to work on the script, but he changed it too much from his original childhood vision. He kind of turned it into more of a 70s exploitation flick with you know extremes and all the different levels of, of sex and violence. Um, he fired the guy, whipped out a draft in three weeks, uh, and e he had each song being a backdrop to the scene. And that's, of course, stuck through to the final script, which I think is very cool. You kind of just hear songs very. end right when scenes do. Um, Incredible. And that's when, that's when United Artists thought the songs would make it too expensive, so they passed on it. And Star Wars. Dummies! And then United Artists, of course, not around anymore. Oops. Yeah, well, that would be United Artists would be put out of business by Heaven's Gate. Uh, very sure within five years of this, right? And it was the music cost. Music costs scared off a lot of the financiers, and they actually at one point, how bad would this have been? Wanted to get an orchestra to create sound-alike tracks to the to the sixties <laughs> tunes. You know, like just generic rock and roll music. It just would not have worked. Miss, missing the point, of course. Yeah. Uh, that's another classic note that's missing the point. <laughs> well, so it gets turned down by MGM, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and Columbia. American International Pictures, George Corman that you mentioned. Um, yeah, Roger Corman. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, George Corman. George the Boxer, George Corman. Um, <laughs> Roger Corman and Samuel Z. Arkoff, uh, you know, were busy making Poe adaptations and beach party movies, so they thought the film didn't have enough violence or sex to suit their studio. <laughs> that That is one of the great uh, uh, twists on the genre of a Hot Rod movie is there is one car crash in the movie. I can absolutely guarantee Sam Z. Arkoff's like, what? We made, we made Thunder Alley. Yeah, exactly. yeah. When Ron Howard directed his first movie, what, Eat My Dust for Corman? Corman's like, I just need 35 car crashes. And he didn't care what the plot was. He's like, give me 35 <laughs> car crashes. Okay, all right. So, 
But eventually, uh, when Universal comes in, they're the ones who, you know, you see the logo at the top of the film, they save the project, uh, sort of. They are meddling as well, but they give the monetary packages, which secured the songs from everyone, except RCA. RCA said no, and so that's why you don't hear any Elvis in the movie. The last time I watched this at the New Beverly, which was the best way to do it with a crowd... Uh, I never realized how hilarious this movie was until I actually saw it with the crowd. The first time I watched it, I could basically have been unaware that it was a comedy <laughs> because, you know, some of these bits build and, and moments and stuff that you can miss it, I think, on video. And many are a flyby. So Universal, like I said, gave Lucas total control on a strict budget. He was told by some execs that they thought American Graffiti was an Italian film about feet. This is a fact. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh which I believe, because they're stupid. And he had to fight for the title over things like Another Slow Night in Modesto, which was an original early title you might have heard of. I'd heard of that before. And some crew members were paid in screen credit. I'd like to hear from them to see if that was a fact or not. But uh, apparently, that's why we have like a longer title at the end. Like up till now, it was all just the big names at the beginning of the movie, then the end and you're out. And now we start seeing credits at the end of American Graffiti <clears throat> till where now, you know, you watch WandaVision and there's like you know, 10 years of credits. Uh, Lucas would have to fight for no opening credits on Star Wars on the next movie, too. So. Speaking of which, this is his only film that he directed without a crawl. THX had one as well. And so oh, American right. Graffiti is the only one without an opening crawl. Well, how, how great does it come out of the gate in this movie? I mean, you're sitting down, you don't know what you're about to watch in 1973. The... Pulp Fiction style, the radio tuning dial, and kicking in that one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock. I mean, it's just like, it's such a triumphant, and the movie just never stops either. All the, I love Terry the Toad's introduction with the scooter. You know, each of them comes in some, each of them's defined by their mode of transportation. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the cars define the characters, and then the characters define Lucas. Each one of them is a different point in his own life. He was the nerd. Yeah. He said he was popular. He was the greaser. He did all these different things. Right, right. It's the four George Lucases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you talk about that, uh, you know, that opening entrance of Toad. That's one of the things the, the, the small budget gave them. They didn't want to reshoot. It was an error, but they're like, this is great. He, he, he screwed up. He was supposed to stop. He didn't. He, plumb, he plowed into the things, and they're like, keep rolling. Ron Howard, to his critic, and looks over his shoulder at it, yeah. turns back around. I'm like, because he could have gone, whoa, cut, you know, or something like right. Points to him for staying in it because they stayed in character. Got a very funny, and I guess Carol was not supposed to be hit in the face with the water balloon. The fact that she did and just had that crazy laugh all naturally, you know, and so there's always the gives and the takes with indie film. Like those two things were errors that they're like, this, we're going to keep them because it's better than shooting again. You know, he went with a documentary feel that works so great in this after he couldn't afford Cinemascope. So good thing we didn't get huge Cinemascope and have a, a Godfather looking movie. Instead, we get this. This feels like a documentary shot on the streets of Modesto. This movie feels like it was shot in 63. It's, it's really sometimes you have to struggle to remember like, oh, 1973 is when people are watching yeah. this. All this nostalgia and all this cinema newness. Yeah, well, you got... Two cameras set up on each of the players in these drives down the street when they're cruising. So he saved money there. He got both shot, both reactions in the one shot with the two cameras going. And, you know, after a while, they worked up to where they could do that setup quickly and save money there. So now this indie film setbacks. Paul Lamatt went to the play who plays John, went to the hospital with an allergic reaction to walnuts. I don't know if that's an indie film setback, but it's just the kind of thing that would happen on an indie film. They're shooting all nights. Oh, you know. and in sequence. So, like, when oh, they're wow. tired at the end of the movie, they're tired. <laughs> wow. When it's been a whole night and they're like, uh, bye, Kurt, you know, they're they're wiped. Yeah. And ironically, uh, Lucas missed his own high school reunion because he made this film. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> Hilarious. There's some other things, like one actor set fire to Lucas's hotel room. I guess it was an accident that happened. Paula Matt threw Richard Dreyfus in a swimming pool and ended up gashing his head the day before he had a lot of close-ups. So they had to handle that. But my favorite thing is a Ford thing, of course. Let's get back to the, the topic at hand. The show here that we're talking about. Uh Harrison Ford and Paul Lamette and Bo Hopkins were drunk most nights and conducted climbing competitions to the top of the local Holiday Inn sign. You gonna stop acting like a lunatic? And then eventually, Ford was kicked out of that Holiday Inn reportedly over a bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> like he went full falfa. That bad, huh? Well, you can see that Bo, Bo Hopkins played the head of the Pharaohs. So you can see those two guys just like getting in trouble. So the, so the studio wanted to 
shelve this because they couldn't make sense of it. Part of these stories could be told in any order. Uh, the crazy thing that sews it all together is the, is the songs and that atmosphere, which is just such a wholly original thing to put wallpaper, wall to wall. And the fact that you go from one car to another, but the song continues, just changes to a different sound of a radio, is a, such an amazing trick to keep a very fragmented narrative, which is meant to be. It's meant to be a bunch of little skits. You know, this happens and this happens. And, and it's all like, hey, remember when you had to try and buy booze when you were a kid? Or, hey, remember the makeout point you all had? I mean, this is remember when the movie, like everything is happening. is like, remember sock ops? Oh, remember Bill Haley and the Comets? To be so fragmented and so radical, it's like such an art film, except that it's so popular. You know, it's, it wants to be, it wants to be loved. Uh, you know, it's, it's not Zabriskie Point, you know, <laughs> just trying to make you stop watching at any moment. Well, there's a couple of very cool facts about that. Uh, yes, it is. The term I learned was diegetic music, which means that it's music that the characters all hear and can react to. But it's, so it's not like, the score of Goodfellas, which is mo mainly songs. And so who comes in to help make that happen? Walter Murch. He Walter comes in, Murch. again, the genius incest of the 70s. He comes in to handle a lot of the sound design. And I mean, the sound design of THX is where Murch got started with him, too. That sound bath of that movie. But this is a different, different type of sound bath. And what they would do is they would set speakers in an alley and a recording setup in the same alley so it would catch the echo of the alley. So all the music you hear, none of it is taken from the record. It is all a record played in various environments to get different echoes to sound like it's out in the world. And that's why you get that sort of in a car sound when you go into one car, but that music's still playing to the guys that are standing around in the parking lot. Now it becomes bouncing off the walls. That, that, they called that worldizing the music, and it's such a radical idea, and it's so effective. And uh, Easy Rider, I think, was one of the first to pass on a film score as well, so they... I think he kind of saw that and went, well, I can do it too. Because I think once he wanted all the songs he could get, it was about 90 grand and he couldn't afford a composer anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the original cut of the film was three and a half hours till they cut it down. They had Verna Fields brought in by Universal. Of course, then Marsha mm. and then George Uncredited also worked on cutting the film down to the eventual, what was it, like an hour 52? Yeah. Um, and you're right. Universal didn't know what to do with it. Um, they wanted to do a huge re-edit. And Coppola offered to buy the film, you know, just saying, give me it. I'll take it, you know. Uh, and then when they won Best Picture, they when he won Best Picture, the Universal kind of went, mm, okay, do what you want. But we're releasing it as a TV movie. Like, every choice they made was really bad. <laughs> yeah, and you wonder why Lucas hates the studio system so much. They were a San Francisco-based film unit, you know, Zoetrope, he and Coppola and, and several others. And... It was because they hated Hollywood. And so fight, 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 fight. And eventually it's the greatest cost to profit ratio movie ever. One of them. They were trying to convince the studio that that this format would play without a radical re-edit. They did a test screening uh, and brought in a bunch of, you know, kids who were of the age group, you know, Lucas's age group that would really enjoy the nostalgia. And it went gangbusters. They walked out to talk to the Universal execs. And the Universal execs said, you pack that audience with your friends. I don't believe this movie plays like that to a real audience. And Coppola pulls out his checkbook right there and he goes, I'll buy the, I'll buy the movie from you right now. Such, such a Coppola move, man. <laughs> Coppola is the big showman. The Godfather. He is the Godfather. He, you've always called George Lucas punk rock. And it's tough when you watch Attack of the Clones for me to get on board with that. But this movie sure. tells me exactly what you're talking about. And this right. guy is the guy who made Star Wars, which is why Star Wars is my favorite of the Star Wars movies. Right. Uh, well, Star Wars is the most radical of all the movies, obviously. It's 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 radical the same way that American Graffiti and THX are. That, that that's why he's such a genius. Is that that three that that three movies in a row, no filmmaker can beat that. No filmmaker can show that much range in their first three movies. Nobody. It's it just uh, from THX, which if I told you that was a Stanley Kubrick movie, you would have so few arguments with me as you watch that. Only when you get to the car chase at the end, you would go, this feels a little more like a George Lucas movie. And I'm going to admit to a, a fault I have made in the past where I thought, you know, they make a big deal about the dice that Han Solo has hanging from the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. You know, it's like, why do we focus? By the time they get to the solo movie, we're focused on these dice. I'm like, no other movie focused on these dice as much as the movie that's being nostalgic about them is focusing on the dice. <laughs> but, and I thought it was because they were originally put in there because they were on Bob Falfa's car. And so they thought it would be fun to stick it in the cockpit of uh, Han Solo's 
spaceship just because it's Harrison Ford. Yeah. Uh, no dice, turns out. Um, the the <laughs> dice are in Steve's car. Yeah, Falfa's got a skull. So what that whole thing is like, it blew my mind, man. All, all the all the rage that's been in my head about that, man. I'm glad you're chilling out, dude. Sorry, still wasn't getting straight for a second there. Yeah, I was waiting for you. We were having a party. You left the door open. We were waiting for you. By the way, you know, his introduction in the movie isn't necessarily his first time on screen. It's an off-screen roar of his engine oh. when Toad and John are talking. I love that. They're just kind of talking. Uh, Kurt, Kurt and John are talking. And then you hear like, <laughs> they go, ooh. I mean, I, you oh, got to okay. believe it's him because as soon as you hear, the, rrr, 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 they hear, oh, yeah, there's a new guy out there who wants to take you on. He's like, I'm not worried about him. But you, you don't see the you don't even see the car go by. They're talking. They stay on him. You just hear the roar of the engine. And it's like a little foreboding of who's out there. You know, I thought that was a really cool. Movie. Uh, Harrison Ford, you know, is the villain in this movie. And he's in the whole movie, even though you only see him several times in the movie, because he's constantly mentioned as this thing that's out there circling you know waiting waiting to take down Milner who knows he can be taken down and a lot of people will say hey Milner some guy's looking for you and then of course he makes his couple appearances and stuff but that is a cool thing that like Harrison Ford is uh, a presence throughout this entire movie yeah. he's this foreboding thing that's out there that's going to come get Milner you know well let's go down each of these actors so um what a cast huh Ford's Ford's doing carpentry but he took the part if he didn't have to cut his hair. I guess in the script, the guy had a flat top. Oh. He said, put the Stetson on me, and I'll take the part. Also, I need more money than I would make if I was doing carpentry, which the original offer was not. Wow. So then the offer was bumped up to 500 a week, and I guess he said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's 30, so he's the probably the oldest of the... I mean, Bo Hopkins looked pretty old, too, as the head of the Pharaohs, but... Uh, but he's living Bo Hopkins years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so Ron Howard as the cool kid, which is, which he plays very well, but after his sort of half nerdy, uh, Rishi Cunningham, you know, he's, it was interesting to go back and see how easily he pulled that off. You know, it might've been, might've been a jolt for someone used to seeing Ron Howard be, uh, you know, kind of cheesy on a TV show for him to really play the ups and downs of a, of a character like that is struggling with his role in the, in his hometown and in his future. Happy Days was launched because of this movie, but uh, everybody know him as Opie at this point. Yeah, and I guess the casting director, Fred Ruse, of Andy Griffith's show, said, try this kid. And eventually, then, if you want your mind blown, he directs a movie of the, about the actor who played Bob Falfa's Han Solo character, which was also created by the director of the movies he's in, Solo. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Last week, we told you to watch the Quentin Tarantino talk about getting straight. If you want to watch something on YouTube this week, check out the rehearsal video, if, if you haven't yet even, Adam, uh, between Ron Howard and Cindy Williams rehearsing their prom dance scene. No way. Uh, it's extraordinary. You're like, watch that, and you're like... Wow, we, I, if I were off to the side, I'd be like, well, we hired the right people. This is great. I mean, they got they got scripts while they have their arms around each other's shoulders and stuff, but they're they're wow nailing it. And I'm like, wow, they, they were excellent. And they're excellent in the final cut. I love that a scene where those two, aren't they the prom king and queen, basically? They're given center dance. Yeah, the cheerleader and the, and the head of the student right. government. And so every, yeah. everybody spreads out to let them dance, and they're all staring at them. And they're at their worst moment, having this total argument yeah. while pretending that everything's fine. Boy, that's a, that's a great scene. And she's great. She's you know She's got the most pain of anybody in that situation because she clearly didn't want to see other people while they're in college oh my God. and he's struggling with, uh, you know, trying to do the right thing. And it just, that's a great scene. Yeah, I never realized how funny that opening scene was till I saw it with an audience where he says, maybe we should, while I'm off at college, maybe we should see other people. I think it'd be the best for the relationship. <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so you got him. And of course the Harrison Ford we're focused on. And then you're like, Oh, we got all the hot rodders. You forget that Richard Dreyfus is in this. Like Richard Dreyfuss is in this movie. He's a huge part, but sometimes I forget. I'm like, oh, that's right. He's, uh, you know, there's so much iconic stuff you might forget. Uh, and he's more or less discovered by Lucas here, too. He's done some TV and he had that little bit part in The Graduate. But that's about it for yeah. film, really. And then he's given this huge anchoring part and he killed it. He was great. And he's, his Dreyfusisms are there already. You know, he's talking to the pharaohs and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he's doing all the stuff that he does so well, you know, <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> and yeah. also, I love the thing that really blew my mind as well. When I started studying filmmakers is the fact that 
you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are friends. Like, hey, you should uh, audition uh, Richard Dreyfuss for Jaws. Or, I mean, certainly Spielberg is going to be paying attention to his friend George Lucas's movie and see Richard Dreyfuss. So that's, you know, that's 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 how we get his most famous role. And that's really the next movie. So, yeah. I mean, I think there may have, I'm not even sure there was one in between uh, American Graffiti and Jaws. So he's right booked to a part where you just expect him to like carry the lead of a movie and then he just does that for the rest of his career uh this is kathleen quinlan's screen debut she was peg if you remember oh, the other couple that's awkwardly right. standing next to uh steve and laurie while they're arguing um had a little scene with uh, cindy williams in the bathroom that's uh Catherine quinlan mark hamill auditioned for the part didn't get it so this is a note to actors book the room that's the phrase you always hear like if you don't go in and book the movie book the room so the room calls you back for their next movie oh that's fantastic and uh bob balaban turned down the part that charles martin smith eventually got eventually got terry and he apparently has regretted it his whole career <laughs> he had a pretty great career too but still but that's that's a good choice that's good good casting director if your other choice is bob balaban you're nailing that character in one way or another right yeah. I'll show you how talented a casting a director is. Like, our two choices are Charles Martin Smith and Bob Balaban. You're really good at casting. Yeah, and that's Fred Ruse, who I mentioned, I think, and he went on to become a producer himself for a bunch of Coppola stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, Del Close, did you spot the Del Close sighting? I did Close not. I see that in the credits every time, and I mean to go oh. back and check out Del Close, and I never have seen Del Close in this movie. Only in the credit, Del Close, guy at bar. The line that stuck out to me where I said, oh, that is him, was when Toad is vomiting, and he said something like, I've never seen anything like oh, that. Oh, that's Del? Typical Del. Del Close, for anybody that doesn't know, <laughs> legendary improv instructor, uh, comedian, founder of Improv Olympic, and uh, probably... A, At about that time. It would not be the last time that Charles Martin Smith and Del Close were in a movie together. <laughs> the guy tries to bribe him. Two more things about the, uh, uh, the cast. Mackenzie Phillips. Gary Kurtz uh, had to become her legal guardian just to get her in the film. What? Because she was 12. Wow. So in order to ensure that everything went well and there was somebody on the set who was her... You know, Legal guardian? There for her. He, he just said, I'm there all the time. I'll do it. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Never. Didn't she have yeah. some drug problems later on as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, she... Yeah. <laughs> Gary, Gary, you could have done better. No, he could be your dad forever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Wolfman Jack, a lot of those phone calls were uh, real on-air calls uh, that they took with people, except for the guy on the line for Pinky's Pizza, the little prank phone yeah. call that they listened to in the car while they're on the way to the sock op. That's George Lucas. Oh, is it? Oh, I got to listen to that back now. That's that's I, I never knew that little Easter egg there. And then, of course, at the end of the movie, it's sad, right? Just the the where are they now? Oh, cards? this is this is one of the radical things that the movie does. Is you know here we are. It's, what, what, what are we saying? Uh, uh, good night, good night is playing. You know it's time to go. Mm -hmm. He boards the plane, and here's this movie that has since since Rock Around the Clock starts the movie out. There has not been a moment where there's not been music playing the, for the first time in an hour fifty two minutes. Wow, you're right. The music right. fades out, and it's awkward. It's weird. And they even go to the plane. He's holding a radio and wants to get another worldized version of the song. We now have it differently than we did on the ground. Um, mm -hmm. But for the first time in the movie, we hear silence, and that's when uh, Milner killed in Vietnam comes up as the first. Or killed by a drunk driver. Or killed by yeah. a drunk driver. And then, and then, but then Toad. The, the order of the those is fascinating because the first one, killed by a drunk driver, he wasn't racing. He stopped racing. He did the right thing. Um, then the second one is Vietnam. You're like, oh, my God, we're like that brings this movie we've spent not being in 1969, the entire movie, not being in 1973, suddenly... We're back right back in 1973 with that second one. Milner dies in an auto accident. Toad dies in Vietnam. And then Steve becomes an insurance agent in Modesto. And for George Lucas, those are equivalent deaths. That's why he had to get the <laughs> hell out of there. You're right. So really, that is a real joke that the third one <laughs> mentioned is Steve becomes an insurance agent in Modesto. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, uh, Richard Dreyfuss uh, made out. Okay. People kind of said, oh, did he? go to Canada because of the war that that's been oh, a lot of discussion yeah. you know and of course the big rumor is that did he go on and write stand by me because ah. he's the author of that you know reflecting on even before the 60s which of course I don't think Stephen King had in mind but casting Dreyfus people go "Ooh, what's going on there <laughs> and then a, another interesting uh, footnote to that is 
uh, John's death was changed to later so he could then be in the sequel. Oh! <laughs> there was a re-release where I think it was 60, he died in 64. Oh, uh, make it 67 because I think they had For more American the, Graffiti? In the sequel. We'll find out. We'll find out oh, in a few okay. movies. Yeah. Well, let's, I'll allow that. So then the aftermath is Coppola still regrets not financing the whole film. He would have made $30 million wow. off of it if he just financed the whole thing. And that would be the equivalent of $173 million today. Oof. It becomes the 43rd highest grossing film of all time, if you add in inflation. Um, and Lucas becomes a millionaire, just like that, in the realm of $4 million, and devotes 300000 of it to making Star Wars. Wow. Everybody loves it except Pauline Kael. But that's natural, right? I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> people seem to like she, people seem to like how I haven't read a ton of Pauline Kael, but people seem to enjoy how she doesn't like things. Though I guess it's yeah, I'm sure it's well said. Bag. Whatever she said about graffiti. <laughs> well, she said that he Lucas was chauvinist because he didn't give us the update on any of the women in those postscripts. She's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, uh, all the studio nonsense we mentioned. It goes on to be nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Director. So all his fighting paid off. Uh, it didn't win any, unfortunately. But a Best Story... I didn't even know it was nominated. Yeah. That's, this is news to me. Yeah, it, it was beaten by The Sting, but nominated alongside Cries and Whispers. And, wow, it should uh, be. The Exorcist. So, yeah, and then the script, Best Story and Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material Not Previously Produced or Published. That eventually became Best Original Screenplay. You can see why. Uh, best supporting actress, Candy Clark for Debbie, the girl that uh, that Toad ends up with, is really best supporting actor. I thought that was interesting, just a little sort of sidelined comedic character. Yeah, and she got an Oscar now. She does a great job. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty cool recognition. And best film editing for Verna Fields oh, and wow. Marsha Lucas. It earns that because the film also knows how not when not to edit. It does never feels rushed, and even though it tells all these different stories, one thing Lucas had to sacrifice in changing it so many times was a b c d format like tell story a to story b tell a little c tell a little to d go back to a b c yeah. and just keep repeating that but it kind of had to get jumbled all over the place eventually with how much they had to do and and how they went through the various cuts I guess. well it seems like an impossible film to edit because some of these things could kind of go anywhere uh and yet they bring everyone back together. Everyone gets their lesson. Everyone progresses to their, finds their truth, you know, throughout the course of the night, the events make all of them better people. And it brings them back together remarkably. Like suddenly in this movie, no matter how far afield we've gone, you know, and for that at some point they all end up back at Mel's and you're like, Oh, we're all back at Mel's. Wow. And it just uh, really feels complete. You know, the whole evening. Yeah. I thought Mel's was built out of America graffiti. No, it was around since the forties. They just found a Mel's to shoot at. Is that the case? That's the case. Okay. Yeah. I always thought that was made up for the movie and someone, that's a themed diner that we're seeing yeah. in LA. It's themed now because they're proud of it. But sure. uh, <laughs> at the time it was just a series of these type of drive-in places and uh, they shot at one. And that one that they shot at is gone, and, but there's still a handful, obviously two here in LA, or three here in LA. I mean, also talk about the nostalgia. I don't think the roller skating waitresses were still around even in 73. That was a particular that was probably something that was going away as of 63 and for all that effort they did win best film comedy or musical at the golden globes so they just didn't win the oscar uh and in 95 the library of congress selects it for film preservation in the national film registry i mean even just watching it on hbo max is the great looking print. great sound Beautiful. great yeah. sound. um modesto dedicates a statue to lucas at george lucas plaza in 1997 okay. nods to the movie show up in Attack of the Clones. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they think when Anakin and Obi-Wan had their yellow airspeeder, ah. that's a nod to John Milner's Oh, Juice of Coop. course. And Dex's Diner is also not unlike Mel's. Right. Yes, yes. A 50s-themed well. diner in space. Um, oh, uh, one other one other reference. Did you catch a reference that The Mandalorian makes to American Graffiti? This blew my mind. No. When you're going steady with someone, if you're a, if you're a rat rotter like Milner, you give them your gear shifter knob. Oh, okay, yeah. Which is so what he gives a... Grogu. And I yeah. mean, that must have tickled George Lucas to no end when he saw that because he <laughs> he knows that you know that was the thing. Mandalorian and Grogu oh, are going cool. steady, but that's a graffiti reference. I mean, that's or I mean, and Grogu really is like the twelve year old girl that the Mandalorian just wants out of his car. <laughs> it is. It is. The relationship is similar. It tracks. Viewing all movies Harrison Ford's in now as a Harrison Ford movie, 
is a really cool in American Graffiti because he chews up every moment on screen and it's it just makes me so happy. All of his nods, he kicks that cowboy cap up. Oh my god. Visual consultant Haskell Wexler. If I were to say, what scene do you think Haskell Wexler shot? <laughs> Would it by any chance be when the movie turns into Days of Heaven? <laughs> <laughs> at the end, after the car crash at the sunrise, those are some of the most beautiful shots in cinema. And they're so different from everything else. Gorgeous ending shots. It's got to be Haskell Wexler. That's why he, they couldn't pay him as a DP because he's a big, expensive DP. But he, he's I'm sure there's a whole story about how Wes, Wexler ended up working on this. But that opening shot's pretty great, too. You'll take for granted the shot of just Mel's unless you start looking at the sky and how everything is in place in that shot. Beautiful, beautiful. right? But what I read was he couldn't afford a cinematographer on the low budget. So he just had the two camera ops from uh, THX, I believe, uh, join him in this sort of. And then with Lucas, like the three of us will figure it out. And then he said, well, I just need to bring in uh, hashtag genius incest and Wexler will come in and, uh, and help me with the visual stylings of the movie. But how does the movie stack up against the four definitive list of essentials? Now, it's interesting because he doesn't have righteous anger. He doesn't have any kind of anger. He's just sure and confident that he's going to win this uh, drag race. Does he point? No. Does he smile and charm? Yes, he does he smile does. and charm. Bob Falfa's got uh, got that in spades. He's cool as a cucumber and just sure he's going to win this match. But then that's about it. So it doesn't check off much. Yet the smile and charm part of Harrison Ford is operating at like a 10. So how Harrison Ford is he in this? He gets to be a kind of a lover boy in this one. You know, like he's got a girl in his car and that's a thing, you know. Uh, sings her a song. Sings her a song, you know. <laughs> Great scene. Uh, so, you know, it's not one of the things we're counting. There's no punches, no stuff like that. But he is he is a lover boy. He's a hottie. So we get that. Unfortunately, I don't think we get another punch to add to the Harrison Ford punch count that we've been tallying since the beginning of this, which remains at one. <laughs> Jack Lemon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he is shirtless in this at the end. They pull him out of the car and his shirt's open. So shirtless Harrison Ford. I know we're not taking uh, uh, account on that. We're not counting. <laughs> I don't know if that's a definitive, but it's something. It's not definitive. It's argument. just a. Uh... You can make an argument. Well, that wraps American Graffiti. So much to say about that one. And if you have anything to say yourself about this legendary film, chime in at the movie guys everywhere and social media. And of course, at themovieguys.net. And because the 70s couldn't get enough Cindy Williams and Harrison Ford, they'll both be back in next week's movie as we return to talk about Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. I'd watch that again if I got the chance. Warm enchanted evening You will see a stranger You will see a stranger Across the crowded room and suddenly you know that she is the one.